Revelation 14. Now, we spent a couple weeks here in Revelation 14. We're going at a pretty good pace here through the book of Revelation. We really slowed down here in chapter 14. In fact, last week we just did verse 13, and I know it's not a really uplifting topic, but we talked about death. We talked about how we're supposed to look at death from a Christian perspective. Now, Revelation 14 is a transitional chapter here in the book of Revelation. From this point on, it's rough. It's rough. There's no way around that. The beginning of the book, it's been tough. It's a whole new phase here. Because what happens here from verse 14 of Revelation 14 on, everything is now focusing around the bold judgments, and then we're going to build up to the battle of Armageddon, and then you build up to the second coming of Christ. Now, as we mentioned out here numerous times throughout the book of Revelation, what we have here at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we're introduced to who Jesus is. That's what Revelation means. It means unveiling. We learn more about who Jesus is in the book of Revelation than really what you even do in the Gospels. Because here in the book of Revelation, you, it's revealed of his full role is. Yes, he's the suffering Messiah. Yes, he died on the cross for our sins. Yes, he's the babe born in the manger here in the next week. But he's also God who's coming back in the book of Revelation to reclaim the earth. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. Well, chapters 4 and 5 introduced us to the heavenly scene to let us know what's going on behind the scenes in heaven. Chapter 6, we had the seal judgments, which were rough. But then after the seal judgments, we had the trumpet judgments, which made the seal judgments look not too bad. Trumpet judgments are rough. Tonight's the bold judgments, and if we said here for the last couple of weeks, the bold judgments make the trumpet judgments look like a walk in the park. It's tough stuff. But before we get to the judgment part, what do we always say out here in the book of Revelation? Wherever there's judgment, there's also grace. And we've been talking about how in the beginning of chapter 14, and you can't forget this part. If you look here, and we went through this two weeks ago, in verses 6 and 7, angels flying around earth proclaiming the gospel. Verse 8, angels flying around talking about the fall of Babylon, which we get to in a couple chapters. And in verse 9, another angel's flying around saying, don't take the mark of the beast. So when we get to this judgment tonight and you see this judgment that's happening, before you start thinking, this is why I have a hard time with God, because he's so mean and everybody's being judged and dying, don't forget the beginning part of Revelation 14. In the beginning part of Revelation 14, God is warning them. God is loving them, and God is saying, don't do this. Reminds me of at home, we have the four boys. Anytime one boy gets on the floor, there's just a pileup. That's just the way it is. There's just no way around it. Anytime someone comes over to the house to visit, we always warn them, don't sit on the floor. <laughs> Richard, and, Richard and Betsy were over the other day, and Betsy sat on the floor. It's like, Betsy, don't sit on the floor. Don't. You're gonna... So the boys start the pileup. It starts the wrestling. And the rule is you only wrestle with daddy. You only can hit daddy. You only can kick daddy. Don't do that to each other. Well, every now and then they just start wrestling. And Layden, who's going to be two here in a week, likes to jump in on it. Well, Ken and three likes to jump in on it. Well, they're the little guys. Every now and then they get bumped. So they come to us and they cry. Now, we pick them up. We say they're sorry. But one of the things we tell them is, hey, you don't play with the big boys, you're going to get hurt. That's not being mean. And if you think that's being mean, we're not being mean. That's just a fact of life. If you want to jump in in the pileup, you're going to accept the fact you're either going to get a knee or an elbow or hit someplace. That's just a fact. We warned you. We told you. We love you. Same thing here, much harder scale. God's warned them, God's loved them, God's told them, judgment is coming. Now are they going to accept or not? Let's see what happens here. Revelation 14, verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. So obviously what you have going on here with this reaping is obviously, who is this in verse 14? It's, it's a picture of Jesus. That's why in verse 14 it says he looks like the Son of Man. 
picture of Christ. On the cloud, picture of God there. The golden crown, Jesus has come to judge. This is the point in the book of Revelation that we're doing. We're reaching the point of reaping. We're reaching the point of judgment. And why are we doing this? Because it says right there in verse 15, the earth is ripe. Now, it's interesting to do this, and I put this in the sheet show. You would know this. The earth is not just ripe. That word literally means overripe. Imagine seeing the apple tree around, oh, November, December, and you see these shriveled up apples. That's what that word is saying. It's overripe. It's when you throw out that fruit in the garden and it just starts to shrivel up. The earth is not just ripe, it's overripe. What this is saying is for thousands of years, judgment has been coming and they've been waiting. It's time. It's not just time to judge, it's past time to judge. See, see we look at these things and we stop and we say, okay, God, you're going to judge, but you realize, depending when he returns, for 6,000 years, that's how long it's been, for 6,000 years, the Lord has allowed the earth to turn and to turn in sin. And so now it's ripe. It's overripe. It's time. So judgment is coming. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now this word ripe is a different word. This word ripe means it's time, it's the right time. It really means almost bursting with juice. So what God is saying here is not contradictory. He's saying judgment is overdue. It's time, and now is the perfect time to do it. Hence, everything is fully ripe to do. Anytime you see fire in the Bible there in verse 18, fire always represents judgment. Verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs, depending on your translation. That could almost be 200 miles. Now, some people look at that and say, oh, okay, 200 miles of blood. Is that God just being a little bit dramatic here? No, I don't know. Because what we're going to get to here, and I hope we get to it tonight, we're going to get to the Battle of Armageddon. And the Battle of Armageddon, literally millions upon millions of people are going to be gathered into one area. For millions and millions of people to be judged at one time, I'm not trying to be gross. That's a lot of blood. One of my first real jobs, other than working on the farm, was I worked up at the uh, meat locker, and my job was to clean up the kill floor after everything was done. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood. You put millions and millions of people together in one small area, and judgment comes? I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to see that. Now, once again, if you only focuses on those verses, boy, God is mean. You've got to go back to verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6 one more time. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You know, it's hard to have sympathy where in one breath you say, hey, don't touch that, that will hurt you, and then you walk somebody right over and touch it. Well, this is exactly what's happening. God is warning them, but yet they still reject. So when judgment comes, yes, it hurts, yes, it's sorrowful, and yes, it's painful to see but at the same time, too, you also sit there and say, why? Why would you reject? And that's an ongoing theme here throughout the rest of the book of Revelation is rejecting grace and love and mercy when given an opportunity to accept Christ. So that ends chapter 14. We get ready to chapter 15. Any quick questions, comments over verses 14 through 20, which we're going to build on here now in a little bit. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I really think, 
I really think what you're talking about here in verses 19 and 20, that's a symbolic picture of what's going to be happening with Armageddon. And if you think about that wine press, you see these, these ripe grapes bursting with juice just being crushed. And that's what's going to happen here in Armageddon in just a couple chapters is the world's going to be crushed by the judgment of God. Anybody else got anything here before we move on? All right, chapter 15 is just a quick little chapter. It's only eight verses. Uh, it's just setting us up for the bold judgments. Verse 1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Remember, fire represents judgment. Sea of glass represents heaven. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Sea of glass should take you back to Revelation 4. We talk about how that's a picture of uh, God's glory and of the heavenly scene. Once again, mingled with fire. Fire, it shows that judgment is coming. Verse 3, then they sang the song of Moses. The song of Moses there, if you want to study that out a little bit more, that you can. And uh, verse 3 there, you can check that out in Exodus chapter 15, and also I believe it's in Deuteronomy 32. And it says, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, in the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb goes back to Revelation 4 and 5 that we talked about earlier. And the purpose of those songs, it's not that they're saying they're singing the songs verbatim, is there songs of deliverance, there are songs of faithfulness, it's songs of glory to God. You have to remember, as we're getting ready here to the bowl judgments, this is the last thing. I mean, it's the last step in what's going on. And it's this process that's just been building up for thousands and thousands of years, and we're finally getting to the climax of this. And so heaven, even though there's fire of judgment coming, heaven is rejoicing. Because since heaven is rejoicing, why? Because Jesus is finally starting to set the wrongs right. Yes, billions of people are going to be judged. But at the same time, too, finally, after thousands of years, sin is going to be dealt with. Sin is going to be defeated. Jesus is going to rule and reign on the earth. And, and we can finally have it the way God wanted it to be. This is why they're rejoicing. Verse 3, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come and worship before you. That's a really neat thing to say because what's going on in the world at this moment, at this time, I should say in Revelation, the Antichrist is setting up his kingdom. The world is worshiping Satan and the Antichrist. Well, what does God need to do with that? Look at the last line. For your judgments have been manifested. It's time for judgment. Verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony, and heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures, remember them from Revelation 4 and 5, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels are completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, we're into the bowl judgments. Once again, there's no way around this. These things are horrible. This is the climax of judgment. If you look right here, that's what these bowls are representing, is this judgment that is coming. And it's the final judgment before the return of Christ. And so when it talks about the judgment of God is complete, this is building up to that point. What's the first bowl? Verse 2. These are pretty self-explanatory. The first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. The mark of the beast, that goes back to Revelation 13. The mark of the beast is something that is set up by the false prophet during the end times here. And it's set up that the only way you can buy or sell is if you have this mark. This mark shows allegiance 
to the Antichrist, and this mark also gives you the economic freedom to still purchase by rejecting the mark of the beast. You're saying that I'm not aligning myself with Satan and with the Antichrist, and I'm also putting myself in a difficult position because I'm not going to be able to go out and do stuff. Now, we've talked about this, how people like to get really worked up about the mark of the beast. We've made this abundantly clear. The mark of the beast is going to be quite evident. I've had people always come up and say to me, well, what happens if I take the mark and I didn't know it was the mark? You're going to know. You're going to know. There's a warning that happens in Revelation 13. There's a warning that happens in Revelation 14. It's not something that's going to all of a sudden be sprung on you. It's going to be a clear-cut making an allegiance to the Antichrist. And you're going to be making a clear decision that I am choosing to follow the Antichrist and not God. And plus, this does not happen until after the rapture happens. So as believers, you don't have to worry about it. And so what happens is the rapture, that quick reminder, that's when Jesus takes the church, the body of Christ, out before the tribulation starts happening. But by taking the mark, you're, you're, you're really saying, I'm rejecting God in his totality. That's why these sores are coming upon them. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. I don't know how else to say that other than I think verse 3 is, is true. No, it'd be really easy to downplay this and say, well, parts of the sea, everything's going to die. And, and, and maybe in, in areas of the sea, guys, this is the end of the world type stuff. And the end of the world, it, it all falls apart. So when I think that this says the sea turns to blood, I, I've seen people try to explain this, that there's something in, the, in, in nature called a red tide where what can happen is there's this plankton that comes in, overtakes things, and dies, and the water becomes dead in that area. I, I don't know. I don't know why we just can't believe in verse 3 that the sea's going to turn to blood. And if that's really hard for people to accept, you've you got to remember what's going on at this time. Angels are flying around heaven. The Antichrist is ruling and reigning. I mean, we just got talked about a demonic angel and demonic force a few chapters ago. Two witnesses were just martyred in front of every day, everybody and three days later resurrected. Sea turning to blood? That can happen. Verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Can you imagine fresh water ceasing to exist? Verse 5, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and, and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. At this point, can we argue with God that his judgments are not true and righteous? There's no way. There's no way. If someone wanted to make some case of, God, you're not being fair, the whole world is cursed. The whole world is under the sway of the enemy. God says it's time to be done. As we mentioned back at the beginning of the book of Revelation, Christ is coming to reclaim this earth. This is his. And it's just like when you get a new house or new whatever, what do you do? You clean house first. Before Jesus sets up his kingdom on this earth, he's cleaning house. He's getting rid of all this stuff. Verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed in the name of God who has power over these plagues. But look at the end of verse 9, And they did not repent and give him glory. Isn't that mind-blowing? I, I don't know about you. If, if I was a non-believer at this time, and I'm seeing angels fly around, I'm seeing the two witnesses resurrected, I'm seeing the sea turn to blood. I'm seeing fresh water turn to blood. I mean, just, just a few judgments ago in the trumpet judgments, meteorites were falling from earth mixed with, with fire. I'd be hitting my knees and accepting Jesus left and right. This shows, in verse 9, the hardness of men's hearts. Now, this is pretty amazing to think that they're not accepting. But you know what? You and I all know people that don't we sit there and scratch our head and say, why aren't they accepting the Lord? What else has to happen in their lives to get God's attention? 
What else has for them to see to make them realize that there's a God that's out there? I remember years ago distinctly there was a situation that popped up. There was a guy that popped out here, not a believer, very clear he was not a believer. And he had a, a situation that popped up that there was absolutely no answer to. For this situation to work out, it would have to be a minor miracle. And he came, he asked for prayer, we prayed, it went, and guess what happened? situation worked out perfect, perfectly. I, I, to this day, in the 12 years I've been out here, I don't know if I've ever seen a situation just come together so perfectly. And I sat there and said, this is what's going to happen to be the domino to fall to make this man come and accept Jesus. He came to church about a month or two after that, disappeared. As far as I know, still hasn't accepted the Lord. I sit there and I scratch my head and say, Lord, what has to happen? And I look at verse 9 and I think, my goodness, these people still aren't repenting. And the same thing, you, you have people that you know, friends, relatives, neighbors, and you sit there and you scratch your head saying, why? They're blinded by Satan. They're blinded by the enemy. There's a pride in them where they're not giving their heart over to the Lord. And we've got to pray that their heart just keeps getting softer and softer. Boy, it's tough to see. Imagine how much it crushes God's heart. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. I don't know what type of darkness this is. This is not a moonless night at midnight darkness. This is some type of darkness that is almost an unbearable darkness to the point that they're gnawing their tongues because of pain. You ever been in so much pain that you felt like you just couldn't handle it anymore? I, I've struggled some with kidney stones before, and every time I have a kidney stone attack, I think, okay, I'm ready to die. Here, they're gnawing their tongues because of the pain. I've never had that amount of pain before. I've never had. And to think that most of the time in life, most of the time, pain is really relatively temporary. When I say temporary, maybe it goes on for a couple hours. Maybe there's even the struggle of maybe a couple days. I don't know how exactly long this goes on for, but it's an unbearable pain. Now, just put yourself in the position that's going on in the world at this point. You're, you, if you have accepted the mark, verse 2, you're covered in loathsome sores. If you've not accepted the mark, you're still dealing with the sea turning to blood. You're dealing with waters turning to blood, and you're being scorched. Did you put third bowl and fourth bowl together? You're scorched in the fourth bowl, but as far as we know, the third bowl really makes it hard to find a drink. You know how hard that is? I heard one commentator even say that he thinks it even comes with a part of, well, anytime you turn on the faucet, you're going to get blood out. And some say, oh, that's not true. Well, wait a second. Where do you get your water from? Do you get your water from a river or a spring? Yeah, you do. I don't even know if there's going to be water to drink. I don't know. And then so you can't get a drink of water. You're being scorched. And then you have this darkness that's not just darkness. It's some type of almost judgmental darkness slash pain. And what are you still doing in verse 11? Not repenting. That's mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. And it's easy for us to sit here and say, this, yep, Lord, I'm just, yep, I get you, Lord. And it's easy for then me to think about neighbors and unsaved loved ones and relatives and say, yep, they, they deserve this. My goodness, wasn't that long ago I was one of these people that wasn't saved. Thank the Lord for his grace and mercy. This is one thing I've noticed in Christianity is sometimes once we get saved, we really start to get a pretty hard heart towards those that aren't saved, don't we? God help us to always have a soft heart for those that have not accepted Jesus Christ. God help us. He still loves them. He loved them so much he sent the angels to proclaim the gospel. He loved them so much that he warned them of these things to come. He loved them so much. But yet, they still didn't love him. And you ever think about that when Jesus died on the cross? He died for the people that didn't even want him to die for him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, it's really easy around Christmas to just focus on this beautiful little scene of the manger and Mary and Joseph and the baby and just how wonderful it is. The truth of the matter is Christmas is the first day towards death for Christ. He was born to die. And so since he's born to die, 
Well, it's easy to think that he died for us because we really love him. He died for these people that also don't want to repent of their deeds. That's love. It's a lot of love. So those are the first five bowls. First five bowls. Now, before we get into bowl six, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the things that we covered thus far? Yeah, Ryan. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly about the exact wording of that. I know it says in the book of Matthew that it says that the days were not shortened, that no one would survive. We know from Revelation back in um, verse uh, chapter 6 that one of the things that happens, the sun um, becomes black as sackcloth and the moon becomes like blood and stars of heaven fall. There is scorching that goes on. Obviously it happens here in the bold judgments, and I believe there's another reference here as we get a little bit farther along in the book of Revelation that deals with a, uh, another idea of the scorchingness of coming. Um, but I, there is a verse that says that the days were not shortened that no one would survive. But I don't know if there's a verse that says if the sun was not uh, shortened that no one would survive. Actually, we know that there's a darkness that happens because of that there. Days are shortened. That's in Matthew 24. It's in Matthew 24. That basically what God is saying is if if the tribulation did not have a set beginning and a set end, no one would make it out of this thing. And, And once again, it's not because God's so angry and mean he wants to kill everybody off. Judgment has to happen. There has to be judgment. That, that's one of the things here that goes on. Sin has to be judged. It goes back to what we just read here in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 16. True and righteousness means that sin is judged. If I love my kids, it means I also have to judge their actions that they do to keep them from doing wrong actions again. If I let those actions go and there's not a discipline for that, I'm not really loving them. God loves us enough to say, I have to deal with this sin problem. If I don't deal with this sin problem, I'm not a loving father. I'm not a loving God. And so the sin has to be dealt with. And so if those days aren't shortened, no one would survive. No one. Anybody else have any other quick questions? Yeah, Megan. Megan holding grandbaby. You look very nice. Congratulations. Yeah, the, the sea mixed with, uh, the glass mixed with fire. Yeah. 15, verse 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sea of glass is a picture of heaven. Revelation 4, verse 6 says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And what that sea of glass represents, represents majesty and power. Imagine, I mean, imagine seeing something, if you've ever seen like the reflection of the sun in crystal glass. It's just beautiful. It's gorgeous. So the sea of glass is representing a heavenly scene of something beautiful and amazing. When it says it's mixed with fire, fire just represents judgment, which means that heaven has a judgmental mindset at this time, that the reason what's going on in heaven, if you will, is the fire of judgment is coming coming down from heaven on the world. That's all that that means. Fire represents judgment. Sea of glass represents heaven. Mix them together. Heaven is focusing on judgment, and that's what's coming out of heaven now is judgment on the world. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Kathy. Yeah. If you did not take the mark, you're, you're still around for the bold judgments. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a situation which I absolutely hate doing because I don't have the answer for this. There are two trains of thought on this. Train of thought number one is, well, when you look at these bold judgments of men being scorched and darkness and pain and all this other type of stuff, that, that the people that get saved during the tribulation, God will protect them from those type of things and that they're not going to have to go through that tough stuff because they're going to be protected until Christ returns. That's one mindset. The other mindset is that there's going to be people that got saved and yes, they have not taken the mark, and so therefore they're not going to deal with the first bowl judgment of Lotham Soars, but yet they're still living in this world, and as they're still living in this world, this world is being judged, and so since they missed the first ship out, they have to survive with what's going on in this world. And so some people believe that there's going to be the supernatural protection that God is going to get them through the tribulation without having to go through this stuff. And there's other group of people that say, well, the world is being judged, and since they're still in this world, even though their souls are saved through Jesus Christ, there is still the judgment that's going on in the world, and since they're living in this world, that by default, that they're falling under that judgmental um, umbrella too. John? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of them do die because it's back in Revelation um, 
verse 9 of chapter 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne. And who were they? Well, they were the ones that came out of the tribulation. If it's a great number that no one can number, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And as this we talked about last week in verse 13, if you look here in verse 13 of Revelation 14, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, the Spirit says they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. At this point, death is a blessing because you get to go home to heaven. You don't have to deal with bloods of seas, fresh water, blood, scorching, and darkness and pain. Death is a blessing at this point. Yeah, Ron. Thanks for asking an easy question there, Ron. Um, and it's 8 o'clock, so let's just be done right now. Um, what reminds me, when you mention that, I take you back to Revelation 9. Do you remember in Revelation 9, verse 5, when we talked about this, when it says in verse 5, it says, And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. It says in verse 6, In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And we talked about that time in Revelation 9, that there seems to be a um, almost a momentary lapse in death. Because death is almost the quote-unquote easy way out at that time. And we talked about how in Revelation 9, part of the judgment that was happening in Revelation 9 is that there was not death because of the judgments that were going on. So, And you know, you're asking a, a deeper question there about, about suicide, obviously. And that's something, and I'm not dodging the question, obviously, but I would definitely talk to anybody about that individually one-on-one -on -one afterwards here, especially since we're after 8. And once again, that's a good thing to talk about one-on-one because -on -one, that usually leads to a lot more questions. But Revelation 9 seems to hint that there's some other stuff going on there. John, you got your hand up? No. Right. No, and that, that's a very valid point. And one of the things I think that always comes up in this spot, which we, we always, I think we've ended every Revelation study with this. We can sit here and focus on the bold judgments, but really what happens is let's, let's just accept Jesus Christ now. And so we don't have to worry about bold judgments. And, and let's, let's see our loved ones accept Jesus Christ now so they don't have to worry about bold judgments. And, you know, we are, we are very, very blessed that we have this knowledge of what's coming. We have this wisdom of what's coming to know that we want to go to our unsaved friends and loved ones and say, I love you enough share Jesus Christ with you. And we have the openness to do this, we have the freedom to do this, and we want to do this. And so that's the thing that we always end here in the book of Revelation is, Lord, now that we have this knowledge of what's coming, we could sit here and debate this to our blue in the face about this or that, and really what it comes down to is, Lord, I want to know you personally, and I want everybody I know to know you personally so we don't have to worry about the deaths. So it's after 8 o'clock, and once again, I have little people looking into the window. So that's usually the cue to let you guys all go. So let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll let you guys all go. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, as we uh, just look at this study in Revelation, Lord, there is judgment. Sin has to be judged. But, Lord, there's your love. There's your grace. There's the everlasting gospel. Thank you so much for that. Lord, thank you for just the gospel that's touched our hearts. And, Lord, I just want to pray for all of us here, especially in these next couple weeks. We're going to run into lots of friends and family members, and some of them will not know you. Lord, help us to be a light and witness, not only in our words, but in our actions. And, Lord, now that we have this knowledge of what's coming, Lord, we want to take this knowledge and spur us on to shine for you in all that we do and say, Lord. Help us be lights and words as we lift this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Quick reminder, we have a wedding this coming Sunday, so we need to um, have the chairs be split. And we need to get the stage cleared off. If we could have a little bit of manual labor to help out that, we would obviously appreciate that. So you guys have a good week.